Chapter Eight of the Golden Bowl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Golden Bowl by Henry James. Book Two, Chapter Eight. What was at all events not permanently hidden from him was a truth much less invidious about his years of darkness. It was the strange scheme of things again. The years of darkness had been needed to render possible the years of light. A wiser hand than he at first knew had kept him hard at acquisition of one sort as a perfect preliminary to acquisition of another, and the preliminary would have been weak and wanting if the good faith of it had been less. His comparative blindness had made the good faith, which in its turn had made the soil propitious for the flower of the supreme idea. He had had to like forging and sweating. He had had to like polishing and piling up his arms. They were things at least he had had to believe he liked, just as he had believed he liked transcendent calculation and imaginative gambling all for themselves, the creation of interests that were the extinction of other interests the livid vulgarity even of getting in or getting out first. That had, of course, been so far from really the case, with the supreme idea all the while, growing and striking deep under everything, in the warm, rich earth. He had stood unknowing, he had walked and worked where it was buried, and the fact itself, the fact of his fortune, would have been a barren fact enough if the first sharp, tender shoot had never struggled in today. There on one side was the ugliness his middle time had been spared. There on the other, from all the portents, was the beauty with which his age might still be crowned. He was happier, doubtless, than he deserved. But that, when one was happy at all, it was easy to be. He had wrought by devious ways, but he had reached the place, and what would ever have been straighter in any man's life than his way now of occupying it? It hadn't merely, his plan, all the sanctions of civilization. It was positively civilization condensed, concrete, consummate, set down by his hands as a house on a rock, a house from whose open doors and windows, open to grateful, to thirsty millions, the higher, the highest knowledge would shine out to bless the land. In this house, designed as a gift primarily to the people of his adoptive city and native state, the urgency of whose release from the bondage of ugliness he was in a position to measure, in this museum of museums, a palace of art which was to show for compact as a Greek temple was compact, a receptacle of treasure sifted to positive sanctity, his spirit today almost altogether lived, making up, as he would have said, for lost time and haunting the portico in anticipation of the final rites. These would be the opening exercises, the august dedication of the place. His imagination, he was well aware, got over the ground faster than his judgment. There was much still to do for the production of his first effect. Foundations were laid and walls were rising, the structure of the shell all determined. But raw haste was forbidden him in a connection so intimate with the highest effects of patience and piety, he should belie himself by completing without a touch at least of the majesty of delay a monument to the religion he wished to propagate, the exemplary passion, the passion for perfection at any price. He was far from knowing as yet where he would end, but he was admirably definite as to where he wouldn't begin. He wouldn't begin with a small show. 
he would begin with a grate, and he could scarce have indicated, even had he wished to try, the line of division he had drawn. He had taken no trouble to indicate it to his fellow citizens, purveyors and consumers, in his own and the circumjacent commonwealths, of comic matter in large lettering, diurnally set up, printed, published, folded and delivered, at the expense of his presumptuous emulation of the snail. The snail had become for him, under this ironic suggestion, the loveliest beast in nature, and his return to England, of which we are present witnesses, had not been unconnected with the appreciation so determined. It marked what he liked to mark, that he needed, on the matter in question, instruction from no one on earth. A couple of years of Europe again, of renewed nearness to changes and chances, refreshed sensibility to the currents of the market, would fall in with the consistency of wisdom, the particular shade of enlightened conviction, that he wished to observe. It didn't look like much for a whole family to hang about waiting, they being now, since the birth of his grandson, a whole family, and there was henceforth only one ground in all the world, he felt, on which the question of appearance would ever really again count for him. He cared that a work of art of price should look like the master to whom it might perhaps be deceitfully attributed, but he had ceased on the whole to know any matter of the rest of life by its looks. He took life in general higher up the stream, so far as he was not actually taking it as a collector, he was taking it decidedly as a grandfather. In the way of precious small pieces he had handled nothing so precious as the Principino, his daughter's firstborn, whose Italian designation endlessly amused him, and whom he could manipulate and dandle, already almost toss and catch again, as he couldn't a correspondingly rare morsel of an earlier pâté tendre. He could take the small clutching child from his nurse's arms, with an iteration grimly discountenanced, in respect to their contents, by the glass doors of high cabinets. Something clearly beatific in this new relation had, moreover without doubt, confirmed for him the sense that none of his silent answers to public detraction, to local vulgarity, had ever been so legitimately straight as the mere element of attitude. Reduce it, he said, to that, in his easy weeks at Fawn's. The element of attitude was all he wanted of these weeks, and he was enjoying it on the spot, even more than he had hoped, enjoying it in spite of Mrs. Rance and the Miss Lutches, in spite of the small worry of his belief that Fanny Assingham had really something for him that she was keeping back, in spite of his full consciousness, overflowing the cup like a wine too generously poured, that if he had consented to marry his daughter, and thereby to make, as it were, the difference, what surrounded him now was exactly consent vivified, marriage demonstrated, the difference in fine, definitely made. He could call back his prior, his own wedded consciousness. It was not yet out of range of vague reflection. He had supposed himself, above all he had supposed his wife, as married as any one could be, and yet he wondered if their state had deserved the name, or their union worn the beauty, and the degree to which the couple now before him carried the matter. In especial since the birth of their boy, in New York, the grand climax of their recent American period, brought to so right an issue, the happy pair struck him as having carried it higher, deeper, further, to where it ceased to concern his imagination, at any rate, to follow them. Extraordinary beyond question was one branch of his characteristic mute wonderment. It characterized above all, with its subject before it, his modesty, the strange dim doubt, 
waking up for him at the end of the years, of whether Maggie's mother had, after all, been capable of the maximum. The maximum of tenderness, he meant, as the terms existed for him, the maximum of immersion in the fact of being married. Maggie herself was capable, Maggie herself at this season was, exquisitely, divinely, the maximum. Such was the impression that, positively holding off a little for the practical, the tactful consideration it inspired in him, a respect for the beauty and sanctity of it almost amounting to awe, such was the impression he daily received from her. She was her mother, oh yes, but her mother in something more, it becoming thus a new light for him, and in such a curious way, too, that anything more than her mother should prove at this time of day possible. He could live over again at almost any quiet moment the long process of his introduction to his present interests, an introduction that had depended all on himself, like the cheek of the young man who approaches a boss without credentials, or picks up an acquaintance, makes even a real friend, by speaking to a passer in the street. His real friend, in all the business, was to have been his own mind, with which nobody had put him in relation. He had knocked at the door of that essentially private house, and his call, in truth, had not been immediately answered. So that when, after waiting and coming back, he had at last got in, it was, twirling his hat, as an embarrassed stranger, or trying his keys, as a thief at night. He had gained confidence only with time, but when he had taken real possession of the place, it had been never again to come away all of which success represented, it must be allowed, his one principle of pride. Pride in the mere original spring, pride in his money, would have been pride in something that had come, in comparison, so easily. The right ground for elation was difficulty mastered, and his difficulty, thanks to his modesty, had been to believe in his facility. This was the problem he had worked out to its solution the solution that was now doing more than all else to make his feet settle and his days flush. And when he wished to feel good, as they said at American City, he had but to retrace his immense development. That was what the whole thing came back to, that the development had not been somebody else passing falsely, accepted too ignobly, for his. To think how servile he might have been was absolutely to respect himself, was in fact, as much as he liked, to admire himself as free. The very finest spring that ever responded to his touch was always there to press. The memory of his freedom is dawning upon him, like a sunrise all pink and silver, during a winter divided between Florence, Rome, and Naples some three years after his wife's death. It was the hushed daybreak of the Roman revelation in particular that he could usually best recover, with the way that there, above all, where the princes and popes had been before him, his divination of his faculty most went to his head. He was a plain American citizen, staying at an hotel where, sometimes, for days together, there were twenty others like him. But no pope, no prince of them all, had read a richer meaning, he believed, into the character of the patron of art. He was ashamed of them, really, if he wasn't afraid, and he had on the whole never so climbed to the tip-top as in judging, over a perusal of Herman Grimm, where Julius II and Leo X were placed by their treatment of Michelangelo. Far below the plain American citizen, in the case at least in which this personage has happened not to be too plain to be Adam Verver. Going to our friend's head, moreover, some of the results of such comparisons may doubtless be described as having stayed there. His freedom to see, 
of which the comparisons were part. What could it do but steadily grow and grow? It came, perhaps, even too much to stand to him for all freedom, since, for example, it was as much there as ever at the very time of Mrs. Rance's conspiring against him at Fawns, with the billiard-room and the Sunday morning, on the occasion round which we have perhaps drawn our circles too wide. Mrs. Rance at least controlled practically each other license of the present and the near future, the license to pass the hour as he would have found convenient, the license to stop remembering for a little that, though if proposed to, and not only by this aspirant but by any other, he wouldn't prove foolish, the proof of wisdom was none the less, in such a fashion, rather cruelly conditioned. The license in especial to proceed from his letters to his journals, and insulate, orientate himself afresh by the sound, over his gained interval, of the many-mouthed monster the exercise of whose lungs he so constantly stimulated. Mrs. Rance remained with him till the others came back from church, and it was by that time clearer than ever that his ordeal, when it should arrive, would be really most unpleasant. His impression, this was the point, took somehow the form not so much of her wanting to press home her own advantage as of her building better than she knew, that is, of her symbolizing, with virtual unconsciousness, his own special deficiency, his unfortunate lack of a wife to whom applications could be referred. The applications, the contingencies with which Mrs. Rance struck him as potentially bristling, were not of a sort really to be met by one's self. And the possibility of them, when his visitor said, or as good as said, I'm restrained, you see, because of Mr. Rance, and also because I'm proud and refined, but if it wasn't for Mr. Rance and for my refinement and my pride. The possibility of them, I say, turned to a great murmurous rustle, of a volume to fill the future, a rustle of petticoats, of scented many-paged letters, of voices as to which distinguished themselves as they might from each other, it mattered little in what part of the resounding country they had learned to make themselves prevail. The Assinghams and the Miss Lutches had taken the walk, through the park, to the little old church, on the property, that our friend had often found himself wishing he were able to transport, as it stood, for its simple sweetness, in a glass case, to one of his exhibitory halls, while Maggie had induced her husband, not inveterate in such practices, to make with her by carriage the somewhat longer pilgrimage to the nearest altar, modest though it happened to be, of the faith, her own, as it had been her mother's, and as Mr. Verver himself had been loosely willing, always, to let it be taken for his, without the solid ease of which, making the stage firm and smooth, the drama of her marriage might not have been acted out. What at last appeared to have happened, however, was that the divided parties, coming back at the same moment, had met outside and then drifted together from empty room to room, yet not in mere aimless quest of the pair of companions they had left at home. The quest had carried them to the door of the billiard-room, and their appearance, as it opened to admit them, determined for Adam Verver, in the oddest way in the world, a new and sharp perception. It was really remarkable. This perception expanded on the spot as a flower, one of the strangest, might at a breath, have suddenly opened. The breath, for that matter, was more than anything else the look in his daughter's eyes, the look with which he saw her take in exactly what had occurred in her absence. Mrs. Rance's pursuit of him to this remote locality, the spirit and the very form, perfectly characteristic, of his acceptance of the complication, 
the seal set, in short unmistakably, on one of Maggie's anxieties. The anxiety, it was true, would have been, even though not imparted, separately shared, for Fanny Assingham's face was, by the same stroke, not at all thickly veiled for him, and a queer light, of a color quite to match, fairly glittered in the four fine eyes of the Miss Lutches. Each of these persons, counting out, that is, the prince and the colonel, who didn't care, and who didn't even see that the others did, knew something, or had at any rate had her idea, the idea precisely that this was what Mrs. Rance, artfully biding her time, would do. The special shade of apprehension on the part of the Miss Lutches might indeed have suggested the vision of an energy supremely asserted. It was droll, in truth, if one came to that, the position of the Miss Lutches. They had themselves brought, they had guilelessly introduced Mrs. Rance, strong in the fact of Mr. Rance's having been literally beheld of them, and it was now for them, positively, as if their handful of flowers, since Mrs. Rance was a handful, had been but the vehicle of a dangerous snake. Mr. Verver fairly felt in the air the Miss Lutchen's imputation, in the intensity of which, really, his own propriety might have been involved. That, none the less, was but a flicker. What made the real difference, as I have hinted, was his mute passage with Maggie. His daughter's anxiety alone had depths, and it opened out for him the wider that it was altogether new. When, in their common past, when till this moment had she shown a fear, however dumbly, for his individual life? They had had fears together, just as they had had joys, but all of hers, at least, had been for what equally concerned them. Here of a sudden was a question that concerned him alone, and the soundless explosion of it somehow marked a date. He was on her mind, he was even in a manner on her hands, as a distinct thing, that is, from being, where he had always been, merely deep in her heart and in her life, too deep down, as it were, to be disengaged, contrasted, or opposed, in short, objectively presented. But time finally had done it. Their relation was altered. He saw, again, the difference lighted for her. This marked it to himself, and it wasn't a question simply of a Mrs. Rance, the more or the less. For Maggie, too, at a stroke, almost beneficently, their visitor had, from being an inconvenience, become a sign. They had made vacant by their marriage his immediate foreground, his personal precinct, they being the princess and the prince. They had made room in it for others, so others had become aware. He became aware himself, for that matter, during the minute Maggie stood there before speaking, and with the sense, moreover, of what he saw her see, he had the sense of what she saw him. This last, it may be added, would have been his intensest perception had there not, the next instant, been more for him in Fanny Assingham. Her face couldn't keep it from him. She had seen, on top of everything, in her quick way, what they both were seeing. End of Book Two, Chapter Eight